Isaiah chapter 62. All right, and as you turn there, I want you to just notice, just look. In my Bible, there's only two pages left. I mean, it might be more in yours. But we've got only a handful of chapters left until we're done with the book of Isaiah. And as I told you last week, we're going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians next. Okay, but as we're here in the book of Isaiah, I want to, as we begin, kind of scale back from the text uh, from our, our chapter this morning And I want to look back through Isaiah at a particular concept and theme, which is coming to its climax in these final chapters. But just in case we we look too narrowly and we only see that maybe this is a new idea that we're reading about here in these last few chapters, uh, I want you to see that what we've been looking at together has been a theme throughout the book of Isaiah from the beginning I mean, all the way to the end. I, I suppose I could make an argument that this is the primary theme all throughout the book. And the text for today, chapter 62, focuses on it. But I want you to see just with a handful of passages what we're talking about. And here's what we're talking about. I have a few words on the screen. And these are all in reference to the same idea. Zion, the mountain of God, the house of God or the dwelling place of God. Jerusalem, sometimes called Judah. Why? Because Jerusalem was capital city of the people of Judah, and Isaiah was a prophet of God to the people of Judah, who were known as the southern kingdom, who were in Jerusalem. Okay, so that idea goes together. And then also, the same idea is used of the people who live there. So you remember that, yes, this is about a city, but yes, this is also about a people, and it can't be anything other. Because if God simply had a plan for a city removed from people, what good would that plan be, right? Is it the creation itself and geographical boundaries that are the crowning uh, part of God's creation? Or is it humanity created in the image of God? And so we know and we must understand that when God references this idea of a great city, it certainly encompasses the people who belong to that city, okay? Not the city itself, because what is a city itself without the people who belong there, right? So when we read Zion, mountain of God, house of God, Jerusalem, the people who live in this place, the inhabitants of the city, I want you to just have your ears and your eyes perked for this particular idea, okay? Scan it again, look at it again, because we're about to look at some text. They're going to bring up all these concepts and all these themes, again, from the beginning of the book of Isaiah all the way up until where we are today. Now, I could have chosen many, many more texts, but I chose kind of a handful. It might be two handfuls. I'm not sure. But I chose a handful of texts to illustrate this for us all today because what I want most of all is that when we leave our time, when we're done with our time in the Word today, I want you to be walking away with a well-rounded idea of what it is that chapter 62 is talking about, primarily the city of Zion, and what all it has in store for you as a believer today and in all of God's redemptive plan for history, okay? Which you are a part of, by the way, right? So it doesn't doesn't matter how many days we have left on this planet. You are part of God's redemptive plan throughout history. And isn't that exciting to know? So part of what we read has real application for today. Part of what we read has real application for that time that is to come, okay? So here is the list of texts that we're going to look at just briefly together today. You have to read that from right to left and then down and then right to left and then down, okay? So I I wanted a way to fit all these on the screen without cramping them together, so hopefully you can see these well enough. I'd like to read these for you. And all these have to do with this concept of Zion. Zion, city of God, house of God, dwelling place of God, mountain of God, Jerusalem, right? All these concepts, just listen for it and notice what it's saying about this place. First, Isaiah 1, 4 through 9. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildo. I know it's not starting off good. Well, it's okay. 
Children who deal, deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel, and they are utterly estranged. This is chapter 1 of Isaiah. Does it start off all that positive? But it must start off this way. Why? To create that contrast. If the people were already good to go, ah, wonderful, righteous people who dwell in my presence forever, then what is he even writing to them for? Right? Because this is all about God's redemption plan for a people, ultimately pointing to a people and a place, right, of which we are part of. So it says in verse 5, why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot all the way to the head, there is no soundness in it. Bruises and sores and raw wounds are not pressed out or bound or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land, and it is desolate, overthrown by foreigners. The daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge. I thought if I ever write a book on the book of Isaiah, I'm going to call it a lodge in a cucumber field. Because that's what it says next, and I love this line. That's what it's like, like a lodge in a cucumber field. I, I suppose that takes some uh, explaining. The, the lodge and the cucumber field, the, the cucumber crops were one of the primary crops that, crops that were robbed. And so during harvest season, they would create a little booth where someone would sit and, and guard the crop in a little booth. But it's weird to look out at this giant field in a little booth. But he's saying, but that's how Jerusalem is. Like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah, and uh, where are they? So, not good. But God, in his mercy and in his grace, left a few survivors. And if he hadn't done that, we would all be wiped out. Okay? Chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 2, and two through 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of all mountains, and it shall be lifted up above all the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. Now, you just got to think, do things flow to high elevation? So just keep that in mind, okay? There's a different type of flowing here, right? There is a type of imagery set in our minds that this is the greatest and highest, and yet everything seems to be coming to it. It is the pinnacle, right? It is the high point of what we have here on earth. That he might teach us his ways, that we might walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Parallel concepts right there. He shall judge between nations and shall decide disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation and neither shall they learn of war anymore. Okay, so I want you to just tell me today, has this come to pass? That there is no more war anymore. Is that true of any city on the, on the planet? Listen, there is peace perpetually and there will never be war anymore. We have arrived. Uh, that's not true, is it? That hasn't happened. And it says it shall come to pass in the latter days. Now, did Israel and Jerusalem specifically get a taste of it? For moments, I, I believe they did. I believe they got a taste of this concept for moments. And then that moment passed. Because although they put all this work into rebuilding a, des uh, a destroyed temple, what happened to that temple? And then they, 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 they come to see that all their effort, well, they built it once and then destroyed and they rebuilt it and then destroyed. And you think God is obviously saying something to them. Do you realize that one day there will be something new that I myself will make and I will bring it to you and there you will dwell with me forever. You, I hope you're seeing this big picture idea. Okay, so we're going to jump just a little bit to chapter 35. Verse 4, say to those who have an anxious heart. Now, why might they have an anxious heart? Because God has promised rest and yet, where do they find themselves? War. God has promised them no enemies, and where do they find themselves? The greatest enemies on the planet are coming after them. 
They have their sights set on them. And so all this peace that God promised, well, of course, that's why they're anxious. God promised us peace, but yet war. God promised us this righteous city, and the people are unrighteous. So the people are in turmoil about this whole situation. So it says to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Your God will come with vengeance and the recompense of God. He will come and he will save you. And the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Waters will break forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. Burning sand shall become a pool. In the thirsty ground, springs of water, the haunt of jackals where they lie down, grass shall be shall become reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there. It will be called the way of holiness. And the unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. And even if they are fools, they, go, uh, they shall not go astray. No lion will be there, nor shall there be any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. And everlasting joy will be on their heads, and they will obtain gladness and joy, and all sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So, put yourself, however, in their present circumstances. Was it true that written during the time of the great Babylonian threat, that when God wrote this to them, that all the people were saved? He said, don't fear, I'm going to come and I'm going to save you. Were all the people saved from the Babylonian threat? No, that didn't happen, did it? Some will say, well, this was fulfilled when the people returned from Babylonian captivity. And they came and they dwelt back in the land. Because you remember that happened, right? Babylon came, besieged the city, took the people, uh, the Jewish people into captivity for a time. When that time was over, they were released and allowed to return to their land. Now, how long did that last? Is that the ultimate? Does that sound like the ultimate fulfillment of what's being spoken here? It seems as though there's something being spoken of here that's not temporary. And all we have yet is something temporary. I said to someone earlier today, I mean, look around at any city here or any city that could come, any city that will be, any nation that could be, and tell me how long is it going to last? Everything must be temporary now because one day there will be what? A new heavens and a new earth. So every single thing that we see and we touch, all that will come to be, will be no more when there is a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, okay? So we ought to be careful not to place our hopes too much in something that is temporary, so, how might this apply immediately? There are some who put far too much hope in a nation to save them, or in a government to save them, or in a nation that could be to save them, or in anything to save you. It's not going to. It's not going to be your redemption. It's not going to all of a sudden be this thing here and now, because God promised that the thing that's coming is a new heavens and a new earth. We know that in the time past, God destroyed all living things off the face of the planet. And how did he do it? With water. And he will destroy all things again, but this time he will do it with fire. Because he said, never again will I flood the earth. And he's going to hold true to that promise. But the New Testament is very clear that all things that we have now will be destroyed with fire. That's what it says. And then there will be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And nothing unclean shall ever come into it because it will be a land of righteousness. And it will never end. It will never end. Maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. Chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Remember that chapter 40 is kind of that hinge in the book of Isaiah where it seems like a lot of bad news, and then all of a sudden we get to chapter 40, and all of a sudden there's all these hopes and promises in, in greater detail, and that's also where we find the servant songs, Right? Chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, and how does it start? Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry that her warfare is ended, 
her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now tell me, her warfare is ended. Has that come to pass? No, that hasn't come to pass. Now, were there tastes of that in history? We have to acknowledge that there are, right? There are tastes of that. And don't we see, well, we're going to see, that although there are future promises of God that are absolutely true and final and complete, don't we also get tastes of those things in the here and now? And we see them, and it makes us long for the fulfillment of that thing, right? You taste life, do you not? And don't you long for eternal life? You taste joy, don't you? And don't you long for eternal joy? You get the idea. You satisfy your belly with food. Don't you want to be satisfied forever? And so we get tastes of things that are bringing us in our minds and all of our affections and everything that we know to that ultimate completion of things when God will make all things new. Okay? Chapter 40, verses 9 and 10. Go up to the high mountain, to Zion, and herald the good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald the good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with his might, and with his arm he rules. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense is before him. Now, that's not the first time we've heard that, is it? We heard that way, way back at the beginning, right? So, there is a concept here that is flowing through the book, and I'm, I'm hoping that you're seeing it. What it's saying so far is that Zion will be redeemed with justice, it will be glorious, it will be righteous, the redeemed of the Lord will live there in perfect joy and peace. This sounds pretty good. But it keeps pressing us to look forward to it. It will come to pass. It's going to be the case. This is going to come. When is this promise going to come? And when is God going to have favor on this place and make it be this everlasting place of righteousness and peace and hope and joy that we've been longing for with anxious hearts? Isaiah 49, 14. And this is why Zion says, Isaiah 49, 14, Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me and forgotten me. Why? Because it has not yet come to be right? God made a promise to Zion, and Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me. Why does Zion say that? Because none of these things have happened. Do you feel it? A big promise, but where is it? Where is the fulfillment of this promise? Isaiah 51, verses 9 through 11. Awake, awake, Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab into pieces? That is, talking to the arm of the Lord, right? Who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, and made the depths of the sea for the redeemed to pass over? Of course, that's talking about what? When the people came out of Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea. Was it not you who did that work, that great wonderful, mighty work, then why can't you redeem Zion and do all that you've promised? And it says in verse 11, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing and everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They will obtain gladness and joy. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away, right? Isaiah 51, 16. I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens, laying the foundation of the earth, and saying to Zion, you are my people. You see, if we're not careful, we're going to have a conception of what Zion is that isn't connected to the rest of the whole storyline, right? Because when you read something like that, you have a city talking, you have God saying, Zion, you are my people, if you have all of these concepts without tying these things together with the thread that's running through it, we might have a misconception of what's actually being spoken of here. God is doing something, and the whole movement is taking a people to a promised place of perfection. But there are some issues. We're about to get to that. Uh, chapter 52, verses 7 through 10. 
It says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, and who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice together, they sing for joy. Eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. The Lord has comforted his people. So that's how comfort comes to the people. Remember when we read, comfort, comfort my people? So the way that God is bringing comfort to his people is by taking them, redeeming the place, and saying, all is safe. You know, I think about, should I say this? You ever watch the show On Patrol? Has anyone ever watched that show? Anybody in the room ever watched the show On Patrol? Thank you very much, Jim McFall. Okay? (laughs) We are the same in many ways. Okay, so... Anyway, uh, given that none of you are about to understand my illustration, I'll come up with something different. So, (laughs) you've seen before, and some of you actually maybe have been involved in this, right? I know some of you have, right? Where you go into a building where there's a threat, and what always happens first? You go and you do what? You clear it, right? And once everything is cleared, then your guard is let down, right? You say, okay, no one here, all is clear. And and very much in this way, God is saying, I am going to come. I am going to defeat the enemies. I am going to clear out everything that is a threat to you. And then what am I going to do? I'm going to say, now, come, all is good. And I will grab you by my hands and I will bring you to the place that I have prepared for you. Because all is good and all is safe and I'm the one protecting it now. And nothing unclean or unrighteous will ever come in, and you will have no enemies. That sounds great, doesn't it? And so from the beginning all the way through, this is what we're seeing happen. God is preparing a place, clearing it of enemies, and bringing his people successfully where they belong. This is good, right? So when we say there are watchmen, where are watchmen? Watchmen are on the walls of a city, are they not? And so what are they looking for? A lot of times they're looking for... uh, enemies to come, but they're also looking for when the king returns and he's successful with the armies because when the armies go out in battle, what do they have to eventually do? Well, they have to eventually come home, don't they? And so the watchmen are also saying, oh, we hope that they come back because if they don't come back, they're all dead and we lost. We better get ready, right? But what the watchmen say here is what? Look, the return of the Lord because he is completely defeated all of the enemies that were against our city. And he is now bringing us all home to our city. So, we have an issue. There are two major tensions that I want you to see before we begin looking at our text. And I know we have a couple of more, and that's okay. Two major tensions that we see. The first tension is this, that there is a promise of future Zion, correct? But there is the present reality of Zion. That's a tension, isn't it? Is that God has promised a great city that is free of threat. There's always peace and there's joy and there's comfort, right? But what were they experiencing presently? Threat, war, devastation, people being killed right and left, taken to captivity. That's not so good. That's what they knew, but yet there's a tension because God told them one day a city is coming, but you don't live there yet. So there's one tension. The second tension is the promise of Zion for the righteous, but over and over in the text, what does it say about the people and righteousness? That they are not righteous. So there's the other tension, is that God says that there will be a perfect place where who lives in it? The righteous ones. Okay, so God's going to make a righteous city where righteous people live in it, but where are these righteous people to be found? Because you've said it's not me, it's not us. So where are these righteous people going to come from? So we have two big tensions that need to be resolved. And again, I hope you see that we're taking a, a broad stroke with this theme throughout the book of Isaiah up until chapter 62. So with these tensions in mind, actually is when we enter in the righteous servant of God, right? If you've been following this, two big tensions, the promise of a future Zion 
And the other tension is the promise of righteousness, neither of which they've been able to lay hold of. And they can't. They're incapable. So what does God do? He brings in, by his own power, a righteous servant who is able to resolve both of these tensions. He is able to provide them with this place, and he is able to give them a righteousness not their own. Right? So he is able to create a righteous people who can live in the perfectly righteous city. All this making sense? Am I throwing a lot on you? I'm trying not to. I want you to see how all these themes work together. Because although we zoom in, and I know that we do, we zoom in kind of with a magnifying glass and we look at the words and sometimes we look at even just individual words and we say, what is being said? But just as powerful and just as necessary, we need to take a step back and say, what all is going on here? And I think this is one of the big themes that's being laid out in the text before us that if we walk away and we don't see this, I think we have a big problem. So given that chapter 62 is all about this idea, I wanted us to see it with fresh eyes on all all that's being laid out before us, okay? So those two tensions brings in the righteous servant who can resolve our issues and the issues for the people of Israel, right? Okay, look at these last uh, few texts, which is Isaiah 53, 11 and 12. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. There it is, isn't it? So we had a bunch of unrighteous people who can never live in the righteous city. That's a big problem, wouldn't you say? But then, because the people cannot make themselves righteous, God does something with his righteous servant, and by his death, his atoning substitutionary death, he makes those who are unrighteous righteous. And if you are righteous, you are actually allowed now to enter the city of righteousness that God has planned all along. But if you do not have that righteousness, guess what? You can't live in that city. You can obtain righteousness on your own, but you must be perfectly righteous to live in the righteous city. How do you become righteous? Through the finished work of the servant of God who is Jesus Christ. All this works together. Isaiah 56, 6 through 8. We're almost there. We are almost to our text for the day. Don't worry, so, so much of what we're covering here is actually preparing us to read the text is why we're doing this, okay? So that when we read it, we don't have to backtrack. We should flow pretty seamlessly through it. It says in, in uh, 56, 6 through 8, foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath, doesn't profane it, holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. Now, it's important that we understand what the holy mountain is, isn't it? So, these I will bring to my holy mountain. Who? Those who uh, join themselves to the Lord, minister to the Lord, they love the Lord, they are his servants, and they keep the Sabbath. They don't profane it. They hold fast the covenant of God. In other words, they're perfect. And that's bad news. Unless you consider what the servant did for those unrighteous people and how he is freely giving us a righteous status. Then we read it and we say, oh, that's great news, because although I was not able to love the Lord completely, although I was not able to keep the covenant of God faithfully, the servant did on my behalf. And he has made me righteous simply by having faith in him. And now I have that righteousness, and if I have that righteousness, God is going to bring me to his holy mountain. God is going to gather me in to this place. That's exciting news. Joyfully will they come to the house of prayer to offer burnt offerings, sacrifices. Peter's going to clarify that for us here soon. That will be accepted on my altar. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. And the Lord God who gathers the outcasts declares, I will gather yet others. Right? Who are those outcasts? All of us. And who's doing the work of gathering them? God himself. This is all pretty good. This is very good news for us. Okay? Two more, 
We'll get to our text. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Here it is. That old arm and hand of the Lord that's not short. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. His ear is not dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So God's righteous city with righteousness and very plainly and clearly, there are those who do not belong there and who are separated from him. And what has separated the people from their God? Sin. Sin is the issue that must be dealt with. Would we agree? If we can just deal with that problem of sin, then we would be the redeemed of the Lord and he would call us all to himself and establish us in this place that he has promised. Final one, Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. For those who want to say that all of this was fulfilled in the past, because there are some who say that, all right? Whether you knew or not, I've told you this before, I just want you to keep in mind, there are many people who write commentaries uh, on bi- books of the Bible who themselves are not believers in Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? So simply grabbing a commentary on a book of the Bible, you need to be very careful about what you're actually reading and who is actually writing these things. Okay, just so you're aware. What is being spoken of here in Isaiah 61? Is it something that happened in the past to an historical people? Well, Jesus goes to the temple and the scroll of Isaiah was given to him and then he read right here. And he says, today these things have been fulfilled. Some 700 years after the writing of the book of Isaiah. So let's read it. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, the opening of the prison doors to those who are bound, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress and ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, garments of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they might be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Okay? So what we have is an ultimate fulfillment of something that was promised all throughout the book of Isaiah. Isn't it promised over and over again that there will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering. There will be peace. There will be joy, everlasting peace and joy. And this is the text that Jesus chooses to read. Because Jesus is the righteous servant of God who made all these things possible. So, with all that together, let's look at our text for today. We're going to break our text up into three sections. Isaiah 62, verses 1 through 5 at first. And what we're going to see here is a bride described. Isaiah 62, 1 through 5. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness, all the kings your glory. They will be called by, an, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of your Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No more shall you be termed forsaken, Right? Why, why, O Lord, have you forsaken me? Remember that? I'm not quoting Jesus. We're quoting what Zion said previously. I am forsaken. Why has the Lord forsaken me? But no more shall that be the case. And your land shall no more be termed desolate, but instead you shall be called, my delight is in her. And your land, married. For the Lord delights in you. Your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Okay. For Zion's sake and for Jerusalem's sake, with kind of loaded baggage now, we come to these terms as we should. If we do not come to the text loaded with the baggage of all Isaiah has brought before us, we would be reading it out of context, right? Because he has been establishing a concept for us to grab hold of this whole time. So when we read here a reiteration 
of God establishing something and saying, it is for Zion's sake that I am acting, and it is for Zion's sake that all these things are going to come to pass. And what is more important, a geographical location or the people that belong to that geographical location? He is establishing a place for the redeemed people. And so, yes, he will act for Zion's sake. Yes, he will act for Jerusalem's sake. Why? Because this is where he's going to put his people forever. Forever. Zion will be righteous and Zion will be glorious. In Zion will be salvation. Zion will be called by a new name. Zion will be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, no longer forsaken, no longer desolate, but instead married, that is, not alone and protected, right? I want to draw just a parallel here. I want you to see it. Knowing that we were talking about this righteous, holy city, Jerusalem, and a bride, we have other texts that are very, very plain about this imagery and what's being spoken of. For example, Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. Just listen. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. Is that not everything that we just read here? This is everything that we just read. And I heard a loud voice saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God will be as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death shall be no more, no more crying, no more pain. It's all the same language that we've just read throughout the book of Isaiah. It's all the same language. So what we see in Revelation 21 is an ultimate fulfillment of all that is being spoken of. Now, again, just so we're clear, this does not eliminate the possibility of a taste of this coming true for a given time and a taste of this coming true for a given time here or at this period of time, right? But there is an ultimate reality to come. When all will be taken away, there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and the righteous city, the holy Zion of God, will come and be in the new heavens and the new earth, in the new earth, and this is where righteousness will dwell. All this coming together, all this making sense to us in the room, okay? Pretty much I saw no head movement, or eye contact. So what that says is either this is extremely boring, you're boring me to death, okay? Or you've not understood, okay? I hope that you are rather bored than not understanding. I would much rather you be bored and understand. I hope that it doesn't bore you though because this is our hope. You have no other hope. And if this doesn't get you excited, I'm sorry, you're focused too much on the here and now. You have no idea if these things are not in your heart and in your mind and stirring you up. You have lost sight of all that has been promised to you. And you think that it's all in the here and now. That's wrong. It's incorrect. Or maybe you just haven't ever seen it. And I hope that's not the case. And I pray that the Lord himself would give you eyes to see and ears to hear all the promises that would be yours should you be made righteous in Christ Jesus. And you, all these promises will be yours. And I promise you in that moment, they will make you excited because you have nothing else but this. You have nothing else but this. Who knows how many more breaths you have to take? And what is it that you're taking with you other than the hope? of righteousness and a permanent dwelling place in his presence for all eternity. He has promised this to you, and here we read of it. Do you want to know what's been promised to you? I hope that you do. And I hope that the way that I'm presenting it to you today is clear and that you might see it and know it because that's what I want for you. So if you're not entertained, great, fine. But I hope you're at least understanding what's being said, okay? Where were we? The bride. We saw the bride. We saw the bride in, in Revelation 21, right? And wouldn't you know it that the bride is also called Zion. 
Wouldn't you know it? And it's also a reference to the actual people who live there as well. And so we have all of these things coming together. We have Zion. We have the bride. We know who the bride is, but it's also a place. It's a city and it's a place. Yes, all is true. All of it's true. And God is going to establish this. When? Here and now? Should we be looking for it to be established that we can see and that we can touch it in the here and now? This promise is for when there is a new heavens and a new earth. This is where your hope is. So that gives us excitement, courage, hope, steadfastness, that even when we lose our last breath, we have more to come. In fact, it's more than we ever had to begin with. There is something greater coming for all of us. Should you be found righteous in Jesus Christ? This is good news. Let's look at the next part of our text. Six through nine, it says, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. We know about those watchmen. All the day and all the night, they they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. Give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise on all the earth. The Lord has sworn, how? By his right hand and his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food to your enemies. Foreigners shall not drink your wine by which you have, for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink in the courts of my sanctuary. What's happening here? Remember, normally watchmen, what are they looking for? They're looking for enemies, or they're looking for the return of their king and their troops. But in this circumstance, it says, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all day and night, and they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. What is that? This is kind of standing in the present, looking forward to the hope of all God has promised, and on the walls of Jerusalem, which stands in imperfection, The watchmen cry out day and night, O Lord, return and do what you've promised. Day and night, put him in remembrance day and night. Lord, do what you have said. Do what you have said. Your mighty arm can do it. It says until he establishes Jerusalem, until these things come to be, remind him of what he said. Remind him of all he promised. And so then we have the promises again that there's not going to be enemies. No one who doesn't belong there is going to come in. Only the people that belong there will be there, right? Everyone will praise the Lord. All will be good, eating in the very presence of God himself, right? This, this all sounds very, very good. Um, now, I just want to take you to a brief place here before we look at the last portion of our text. So I, I hope that our upfront work is leading into a greater understanding that when we read these portions of the scriptures, we're coming into it not having to say, now what does this mean? Because we get it from beginning to end. This is what he's been talking about. It's the same concept, just presented to us on different terms. Um, So I want to take you just to a place here, and this is in uh, Hebrews 12, verses 22 through 29. If you just just look there briefly with me, I want to show you something. It says, this might be hard to wrap our minds around given all that we've said, but just listen to what it says. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, innumerable angels in festal gathering. How could it be How could it possibly be that we have arrived at something that's going to come with the new heavens and the new earth? Unless we've misunderstood. What is this talking about? We've come to the heavenly Jerusalem? It hasn't come down out of heaven yet. What are we talking about? It says, if we continue reading, the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven and to God, judge of all the earth, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, 
And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, sprinkled by the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned on the earth, much less will we escape if we neglect him who warns from heaven. So listen to these words. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. He has promised. So we're forward looking. He has promised yet once more, and I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. What does this mean? God is about to do a work where he's going to shake not only the heavens, but also the earth. There is going to be something universal that happens. And when that happens, it says yet once more, it indicates the removal of things that are not shaken. So uh, I don't know how to, how to term this other than, you know, you take something and, and uh, it has things in it. You shake a box, and unless it's glued to the inside or it's part of the box, everything falls out, right? And he says he's going to do this with the heavens and the earth, and the things that don't belong are all going to fall out. And so what does that have to do with anything? It says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The kingdom that we have received in Christ Jesus. You shake the heavens and the earth, and the kingdom doesn't fall out. And you have already had entrance into that kingdom. The kingdom is already yours. The kingdom is Christ. The kingdom is already yours. But yet, here we have this uncomfortable reality that while we have entrance into the kingdom, what are we stuck with? The present reality that we have not yet fully arrived. Here we are all together as a people in the midst of crying babies and people who have headaches and people who are bored and people who had a hard day and People who, whatever it may be, you're going through grief, sorrow, pains. I don't know. Maybe you're going through the height of joys and you just got whatever. It doesn't matter. We're, We're a people who are going through the ins and outs of all of life's situations. And we know and we feel and we understand that we have not yet arrived at this perfection that God has promised. We feel it. But we have obtained something that will never go away in this age and in the next and that is the very kingdom of God itself. You have been given entrance into the kingdom of God by means of the righteous servant of God, Jesus Christ. And when you place your faith in him, all his righteousness is credited to your account, and all that was bad and unrighteous and sinful in you, he pays the price of. So now that you are properly ready to inherit all that is yours, you are the bride being prepared spotless, for entrance into that kingdom forever. Do you see it? We are being prepared to enter a kingdom for all eternity, and yet we have the first fruits of it now. We taste it. We have the Spirit of God in us, don't we? Is that a first fruit of the Spirit to come? And we have the fruit of the Spirit now in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things will be in perfection in the life to come, but we only taste them now. What all we have will come into fulfillment in perfection, but yet we, at the same time, we have arrived, right? We have arrived, but yet we have not yet arrived. You hear it? You feel it? You understand? We have come to taste of the kingdom, and it is ours, but we have not yet gone to the kingdom. It is not yet here. It is not yet ours in, in perfection. And so both are true. I could go into, and I won't for time's sake, but just think about it. You remember that there was a cornerstone laid in Zion. That is, there is a building being built in Zion. And the cornerstone of that building being built in Zion is Christ Jesus himself. And don't you remember that you, uh, that it is said that we can become pillars in the house of God? You remember that, right? Written to the churches in, in Revelation, right? You'll be pillars in the very house of the Lord. And so there is this idea that it is both a place and it is also a people. And we are coming to this place and it is a future reality that will be ours forever. Okay, let's look at the final idea. So the Redeemer is coming and he has come, but yet he is coming back again. Right? Does all that make sense? The Redeemer has come, but yet the Redeemer is coming. So there is a completed reality and yet an unfinished reality. And that's why we feel this tension. It is ours, but yet not in fulfillment. 
not, not in its completion, all of it. It's not ours yet. The Redeemer came, he finished the work of redemption, but then he is coming back to establish all these things as he promised, right? Let's look at the last little bit of our text. So we have the bride, we have the Redeemer accomplishing his work, and then we have the people in verses 12, uh, 10 through 12. It says, go, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift a signal over the people. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him, there it is again, and his recompense is before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And as for the city, you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. A not forsaken city. And who belongs in this city that's not forsaken? The redeemed of the Lord, the holy people of God. How do you become that? How do you become the redeemed of the Lord? Well, we've talked all about this, haven't we? How do you become that holy people? I want to I end our time together with John's words. And I want you to just listen to a couple of key ideas. Go through, go through the gates to the city, right? Isn't that what Isaiah is saying? Go through the gates to the city. Why? Because you belong there. Go, go through the gates. Then he says, uh, clear the way, right? It's almost like an art, like roll out the red carpet. Like get everything out of the way so they don't trip or fall over anything. Let them come. This is their place. Lift up a signal. What's a signal do? It says, hey, all good. Everybody come now, and we all go to this place. And then it says, it's been proclaimed to the ends of the earth, and say to the daughter of Zion, your salvation comes. And what does it talk about specifically? The one who did it all. His reward is with him, his recompense is before him, right? And they, those people, shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. Now, let's just look. We're going to end our time together in, in the word in Revelation 22. I wanted to make this connection. I've been working all the way through here to make this connection. I want you to see it, and I hope that you see it as, as clearly as I did. Okay, Revelation 22. We remember, lest you be terrified by the word Revelation, okay? I know many are. You see lightning bolts and hurricanes and dark clouds. I don't know what you see, okay? Uh, this is the word of God, okay? Uh, this is the very word of God just as much the word of God as Isaiah or Romans, all right? And so what we're going to read here is just listen for all these concepts, themes, words that come perfectly together right here in Revelation 22. And by the way, what happens in Revelation 21? The new heavens and the new earth. Look at Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God, of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on each side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God, the Lamb, will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light. We just talked about all of this, didn't we? And they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And now John kind of interjects. He says, I, John, I'm the one who heard and saw all these things. And when I heard and I saw them, I fell down and I worshiped at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets. And with these are the words of this book. Worship God. He, so John just did something inappropriate, wrong, right? He heard the great words that the angel was giving him, a prophecy, and all that was to come. And John, out of reaction to this, fell down and worshiped the angel. And the angel said, no, 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 you misunderstand. Stand up. Worship God. Not me. I'm just a messenger. Right? Isn't that what the word angel means? Messenger? And so it says, 
And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, let the filthy still be filthy, the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Verse 12, look at it. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now we're going to read verse 14, but just wait for a second. I'm bringing my recompense with me. We have heard that many times today, but from where? From the book of Isaiah. Because these things are together with this fact that one day this righteous one is going to come back and give repayment for all that has been done in this life. And if you find yourself outside of righteousness, you must pay for all that you have done. And he will do it. But if you find yourself in righteousness, in fact, you are his. He knows all who are his. They are his. They are loved by him. They belong to the kingdom. You are on his side. But if you are not on his side, there is repayment. And he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And if, you, if you're not aware, if you don't know, Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And that's why he says, I am the first and the last. It means the same thing. So he's saying, I, I am the first, and you better believe it, I'm the last. And no one comes before, no one comes after. I'm it. It's me. I'm the point. And then it says, blessed are all those who wash their robes that they might have the right to eat the tree of life, that they might enter the city. How? By the gates. You see that there is entrance to a city promised here. How do you enter this city? You have to have your robe washed white, cleansed. You have to not be a sinner. You have to not be unrighteous. And in that case, you have the right to eat of the tree of life. Now, where does that take us back to? Back to the Garden of Eden, right? Were Adam and Eve allowed to eat of the tree of life? No, they were kicked out before they could. So humanity lost access to the tree of life. And in the end, we are given free access to the tree of life that we might live forever. Where? In the city that God has promised. How do we get there? We enter right through the gate. Why? Because you belong there. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about all these things for the churches. I am the root, the descendant of David, the bright morning star, and the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy, God will take away from his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testified to these things says, surely I am coming soon. And what does John say? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Do you see the way that John ends the book of Revelation? What does he reflect on? Two big realities. And I think this is a prevalent biblical theme from beginning to end. And we, I think we just saw both parts of redemptive history come together, didn't we? That we saw the Garden of Eden and all that mankind lost. And then we see in the end a new heavens and a new earth where there is righteousness. And there's all of a sudden free access to all that God gives. So if you're thirsty, come. If you want it, come. And, but here's the thing is that only some belong there and others do not. And so John says, you better listen close. You better listen to all that's been said. Because there is only one way to get this city that's been promised to us forever. The city that God promised, the place that God promised, his dwelling with the people. If you want to come and enter through the gates, God made a way for you to get there. But there's only one way for you to get there. And that way is by faith in Jesus Christ, the promised righteous servant of God who came, who lived a sinless life, died on a cross, was resurrected, lives at the right hand. He is seated until all his enemies are made his footstool and then he will come. And he is coming back and he will come back and he is going to bring repayment with him for all. And we must be found on the right side when he comes. 
Because if you are not on the right side, you have no entrance into the eternal righteous city of peace, love, joy, and bliss for all eternity. You have no share in the tree of life. And that's it. What else do we have? What else do we have as the people of God? What else, what else do we have as people created in the image of God? I, this is it. Is this not the whole point? And so we go back and we live our lives and who knows how long, much longer we're going to live and who knows the pains and the frustrations we're going to go through. And yet, it is so difficult to keep this frame of mind day in and day out, isn't it? Because if this truly were our mindset day in and day out, do you think that you would be a different type of person? I think I would. I want to keep this on my mind, don't you? Do you want to keep all the promises God has given right on our minds? Would you be more free with your time? You would give, wouldn't you? Would you be more free with your money? Would you be more free with your relationships? Would you be more merciful? Would you be more grace, uh, gracious? Would you be more humble? Would you be more trusting? Would you have more faith? I think all these things would be true if we can keep in our sights all the promises of God because remember, none of this is contingent upon us bringing these things to fulfillment. It is contingent upon him and his strong arm to bring all these things into fulfillment. Is that right? So we have great promises, don't we? And we have a great God, don't we? And we have an entrance into that promised city of Zion, don't we? That city will be ours if we are Christ's. Amen. And so we say what? Come, Lord Jesus. Right? Why come? Why do we want Jesus to come? He's going to take us home. Isn't he? Jesus is going to come. He's going to take us home. So what else can we say other than come, Lord Jesus? I think maybe, maybe that needs to be in our mind more. Maybe we need to be the watchmen on the, on the city walls. We need to say, Lord, come do what you've promised. Lord, do what you've promised. Come. Come, Lord Jesus. Because I know that although in Isaiah the, the name Jesus wasn't attached here, we know now that when he comes bringing his recompense with him, who is he talking about? Jesus himself. Jesus is coming back. And what do we say out of faith? And out of hope and expectation, come, come, Lord Jesus. And this is what we ask and this is what we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray.